this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest, Andrew Weinrich, sold Six Degrees for $125 million. Six Degrees was based on the principle that you're only ever six degrees of separation from anyone on the on the planet. And it was really the precursor to the sites we know now as to be Facebook and LinkedIn. He did that back in 1999, which would have been enough to kind of ride off in the sunset, but he didn't. He went off and built three additional companies, uh, each of which he sold, one to IBM, another to Match.com. Weinrich really has built a bit of a formula for building and ultimately selling companies very successfully. So in this interview, you're going to learn the common denominator among all four of Weinrich's exits and what he points to as the kind of key strategy you've got to follow to successfully exit a business. Um, We'll talk about the ways to identify the companies that are really highly likely to want to buy you. He talks about and defines something called a dual track fundraising mandate that you can hire an M&A banker to do for you. Uh, he talks about the way he used his board. And if you've got an advisory board, you know you want to listen for how he really leveraged his board. Um, and one sort of simple technique he used when he was ready to sell one of his companies that enabled him to get 15 businesses really interested in selling his company with one email. And I'll tell you about the, uh, the, the kind of tactic he used in that. Lots to learn. Here's Andrew Weinrich. Andrew Weinrich, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you for having me. So, Andrew, usually on this show, we talk to an entrepreneur about a single exit. And it became clear to me as I was reading your bio that that is a completely impossible thing to do in your case because you've had so many companies. Uh, How many businesses have you actually started and exited by now? Um, Four exits. Uh, Started um, seven. Two of them are active operating businesses today. So um, of the five uh, that I had started previously, four exited, uh, one went under. So a lot of people start businesses and run them for 30, 40 years. I'm just looking at your picture. You don't look more than, I don't know, how old are you? Uh, late forties. So you, you don't look like you've, you've been in any one of those businesses for decades. So have, I mean, has this always been a strategy to build it and sell it? Is it, in your mind that that is the exit or that is the end game from the beginning? No, I, I mean, I, I think when you start a business, you dream about, or at least I dream about what I can do that could be massively disruptive. And I choose verticals and spaces where I think there's an opportunity for massive disruption. And, uh, and I like to think I, I practice what I preach, which is that if you're building a business and your thought processes towards an exit in a short time frame, you're likely not to be very successful. That said, smart entrepreneurs are opportunistic. And at any given moment, I think you need to evaluate um, how is what I'm doing uh, correlate to my initial thesis? How likely am I to be um, as successful as I initially anticipated? Am I properly capitalized? Is there an opportunity that makes sense for me and my shareholders right now. I think you always got to be considering that. But if you're, if your goal is I'm going to build something and um, and sell it in a short period of time, usually that's a prescription for failure. Talk about six degrees because uh, I understand that was your first sort of significant exit. What, what business were you guys in? So we were. I was. Um, I was an attorney at the time. This was 1996, and I was. Um, intensely focused on starting an internet business and thinking about what I could do that 
would be massively disruptive and where a entrenched offline player could not come and build something similar or have a competitive advantage. And that led me to this thought that we needed to do something um, that comprised user-generated content because that was the, the great revelation of, um, of what the internet was about, that you had lots of people that could simultaneously publish. And I arrived at this idea that if I could get everybody to index their relationships in a single place, then you could see the people you don't know through the people you do. And we, in fact, filed a patent on that. It's it, to, even to this day, the six degrees patent is the, um, the seminal patent in, in the social networking space. It was it's now owned by, by LinkedIn, but we literally patented the notion that, um, that you could index your relationships in a single place. You could see the people you don't know through the people you do. And that became the definition of a online social network. And so that was um, the underpinnings, if you will, of Six Degrees, which grew to become one of the largest uh, community sites and the first really major online social network uh, from 97 to 99. And so where was that, where it was LinkedIn and MySpace and Facebook at that time? Were they non-existent? Non-existent. The, the progression of social networks was uh, Six Degrees, uh, was pretty dominant. And then you had Friendster, uh, and then MySpace and then Facebook. And we could correlate these to times. It's actually an interesting conversation about why it is that with every generation of social networks, where you think there's a built-in entrenched, um, dominant, uh, position that is defensible because of a network effect. Um, we see born a new generation of social networks and, um, and even to the point where is it interesting what will happen with Facebook? Has Facebook achieved with its 1.7 billion users um, dominance or are we going to see uh, new waves of social networks that will displace Facebook as well? What are your thoughts on the Microsoft acquisition of LinkedIn? I thought it was brilliant. I mean, I, I, LinkedIn, by the way, the answer to my prior question, my, my prior rhetorical question was, we're already seeing Facebook disrupted and Facebook is, uh, has shown the good sense to acquire some of the companies that are disrupting them. WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, their daily usage is, is by some metrics, it, user engagement by some metrics is declining. And that's a result of partially cannibalization, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Snapchat. LinkedIn, um, I think is, you know, I personally use LinkedIn substantially more than I use Facebook. And the idea of, um, context and purpose surrounding these social networks has, has come to define them. And in the business context, um, LinkedIn is really dominant and, and I think provides an incredibly valuable service. And I think is consistent with um, a lot of Microsoft's objectives uh, over time. So let's go back to six degrees. So you start this business, it's 97, 98, 99, kind of first generation of the social networking space. What's the, what's the team? Is it, is it you and a partner? What's the kind of shareholding team look like? So, um, when I started the business, I was, I, I, I was, I was, um, I'd gone to law school and I, had, uh, my second year out, I got a job as general counsel of a technology company, a PC clone manufacturer in Manhattan that was getting ready to go public. And that sounds like an amazing job. I mean, a general counsel position and, you know, usually those are people that have a great deal of experience. The fact was I got the job because no one else was willing to take it. The, the, um, it was a poorly paid, um, uh, small company where it wasn't clear what the progression would be. And I loved the idea of jumping into a tech firm, but a year in, I, was committed to this idea that I would do it on my own. And I put together a group in the evenings for the purpose of coming up with internet ideas, with this idea that whoever came up with the idea, we would all quit our jobs once we settled upon an idea, and then we would um, have shared ownership in the idea. And so people presented different ideas and we met uh, every single week. And I got very excited about this idea of six degrees that I just described to you. 
And I said um, to the group, I'm quitting my job. Who's in? And everyone said, we love the idea, but we're not quitting our job. So I quit the group. And the next day I quit my job. And when I started, it was me. Uh, the immediately I reached out to other people. Um, nobody had experience in building internet companies at this time. So I broadly defined what are the areas of expertise that I'm missing, which was virtually every area, right? I didn't, I didn't have someone in marketing. I knew that would be important. I didn't have, uh, a lead developer. I didn't have, uh, someone who, um, had a background in, in graphic design and I took coffee dates with, um, anyone that would introduce me to someone who they thought was razor sharp. And very quickly, we put together a team of seven people, um, all of whom were paid. Uh, well, this, when we started, the first capital that I raised was $25,000. And so most people were not getting paid. And then we raised a small round and people got paid $40,000 a year. Everyone got paid the same amount for a year. But that was the the core group of those seven people um, that I worked did, with for the first did, year. Did the seven get options in lieu of a market rate salary? They all got options, yeah. Got it. And so the, the, you go to the, the first round. Who'd you get the 25K from? The second guy who, when I tell you that I was focused on the smartest people I could find without regard to, to, um, without regard to exact experience or, or even, even, uh, <laughs> with that regard to experience in building a technology company. Um, the second person who joined was a bankruptcy attorney. I mean, of all people to join a company, when you start a bankruptcy attorney, you would think would be your last person. But, um, I found this guy who was razor sharp and he hated his job. And he said, uh, I'd like to invest $25,000 on the condition that you also let me join full time and I can deal with your legal issues. I can deal with some of the operational issues. And so the second employee was a bankruptcy attorney. <laughs> That's hilarious. So then what was the capital? How did the capital structure evolve between the 25K from the bankruptcy attorney through to the ultimate sale? I mean, you're asking how much we eventually raised a little over 25 million dollars. Um, I mean, we starved in the wilderness for the better part of a year. And, uh, and I went through, I think I, I, at that time I must've held the record for the most rejections, but the people, it wasn't like there was, um, a slew of venture capital firms in New York. And even if there were, it wasn't like I had access to them. I was focused on high net worth individuals. And so I focused on wall street and, um, eventually put together sort of a who's who list of, uh, wall street executives that funded the first $750,000. And then we got uh, a small, uh, a small fund to put in, um, I think it was a million dollars. And then finally we were able to, to get a, a single $10 million check from a large, uh, venture firm out uh, West and then News Corp, um, invested $13 million. How much of your time were you in the, in those years spending raising money? You know, you're, you're always raising money. I mean, I, the, the, what I found was, was one year we moved offices. We were adding people so quickly. We moved offices. It was three or four times in a year. And in one case, it was just moving down a floor. Um, but you're, you realize as soon as you raise capital, that if you deploy that capital in the way that you intend and your goal then the goal was growth above all else. Nothing matters but growth. I think people have a more balanced, more nuanced perspective about what are, are considered appropriate milestones as you build the business today, what constitutes success. But then it was growth and nothing else. And so the name of the game was deploy capital as quickly as possible. And as soon as you raised capital, you realized you needed to go back and raise more. And so a lot of that was just relationship building. We had, you know, when we raised the, 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 um, one of the best people I ever worked with, um, was a, um, 
was a venture capitalist, now an entrepreneur, um, named Matthew Cowan. He worked with uh, Bowman Capital. Um, and I remember when, after Bowman invested $10 million, he came and said, uh, came to my office and said, what can I do for you? And I remember being so shocked at the idea that as opposed to having a relationship with a board that was very much one of you reporting out to the board uh, and then providing some oversight, he showed up and said, I'm here to work for you. And I said to him, we're building a media property. We would ideally like to have a relationship with one of the largest media companies. And so that was News Corp and Disney and, uh, and Time Warner. Uh, and so literally within a week, he had Peter Chernin um, in my office talking about an investment. And that shaped in large part my whole perspective about how a CEO interacts with a board that if you can't proactively figure out how to get a board to work for you, you will be working for a board. But if you can figure out how to get a board to work for you, um, you can substantially increase your ability to scale and implement um, and achieve your objectives. For clarity, Peter worked for News Corp. So Peter Chernin was um, Peter Chernin was the he was either the president or he was Rupert Murdoch's number two. Got it. Got it. And so you'd put sort of Matthew to work in this way, and he brought uh, News Corp to the table, and you were able to raise more money. Talk about the sale of this this company. How did that get triggered? What was the well? So you know there was it, it, there was no notion of. Um, in the, in the late nineties, there was no notion of building, uh, to get to a break even level. The, the six degrees had distinguished itself on the, on the ability. We were really the first to, um, exploit this, um, this notion of virality and virality defined as get people to include their friends as part of building a network because it enhances the utility they can derive from the network. And so our focus was grow, 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 grow. And as we were adding people, we were increasing the burn. And so it meant that this wasn't a situation where you raise 10 million and then 13 million, and then you scale back and say, okay, we're gonna get to break even, or we can raise 5 million. You needed to raise ever increasing sizes for each round. And um, so it made sense you know, all along to explore what are the M&A opportunities? Because I need to evaluate those as to whether we can continue to raise large, larger uh, blocks of capital at ever increasing valuations. And so we, we were always aware of, um, of opportunities. We were always listening to what the larger players were considering. There was a company um, called Planet All that focused on um, uh, dynamically updating your contact manager that Amazon had acquired. That was interesting. Uh, a lot of the big players, uh, Yahoo had made, you know, uh, a big acquisition earlier with GeoCities. And so we were, we were just attuned to what the big players were doing. Um, and we had, you know, it was, it was 1999 and we had conversations with members of the board that we would be open to hearing about um, acquisition opportunities. And actually this same, uh, director met with, uh, happened to have gone to one of the Allen and company retreats, um, and met with the CEO of a publicly held media company. Um, and funny enough, I knew the CEO of the publicly held media company called Ustream Media Networks. Um, but you know, it's, it's never, it's never a conversation you want to have to say to someone, um, would you like to buy my company? And, but it can be very effective to have someone who's not you, the CEO, um, indirectly or subtly broach that topic. So he, he had, um, broached that topic and the CEO subsequently contacted me and we, um, and we were able to fairly quickly put together a deal. So Matthew was the board member that went to the Allen and company event. Yeah. Is that right? Got yeah. it. And so, so he meets uh, the Ustream um, CEO 
And, and it was ultimately Ustream who, who acquired Six Degrees? Yeah. And, and what were the deal terms? I understand they were, uh, they were made public. So do, do you mind sharing what, uh, what they paid for the it was, company? It was a $125 million uh, stock transaction. Um, and I uh, stayed with the company uh, subsequently for um, several months um, and, then, um, and then departed. So a stock transaction, meaning the founders, the shareholders, News Corp, Bowman, and your seven founders and all the other stockholders got stock in Ustream. Right. And how did that end up working out for that, everybody? Um, you know, it depends. It depends when, um, it depends when those people exited. I mean, obviously the stock market uh, suffered a severe correction in 2001. And... So Ustream stock ultimately got hammered in 2001 when the market corrected. So if you were holding Ustream stock, that was a problem. And did, did you have to hold it for that length of time? Um, it, it, was, it was tiered what you could hold. So, it, you know, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't like you had to hold 100% of it. Uh, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like there was a a hundred percent lockup for the entire period of time. So you were able to get rid of some tranches as time went on. It, it was, um, it was tiered. Yeah. Got it. And so what was the big lesson from the six degrees exit as you look back on it now? I, I'm not sure whether you're asking that in terms of, um, you know, if you could sell, for cash versus stock is that you know, sometimes that works out substantially better when you can sell for cash as opposed to stock. I think you're asking me more from the perspective of what's the lesson in terms of, um, of, uh, of how to engage in the sales process and when to sell. And, you know, with respect to when to sell, that is a really hard thing to apply some type of methodology or, um, or science too, right? I mean, predicting when the market is going to crash, obviously if we had sold earlier, um, before the crash or with a further distance before the crash, that would have been far better for us. And if we had not sold at all and capitalized, um, the business sufficiently to withstand the severe downturn, well, one of the big lessons of six degrees which I'm, I'm asked about all the time is, is what would it have taken for six degrees to become Facebook? And what I tell people is a lot of people don't, don't remember that in the nineties, certainly in our, uh, social network, there were no photos on people's pages. And the reason there were no photos on people's pages was because most people didn't have a digital rendering of themselves. Why? Because there weren't that many digital cameras and Lo and behold, we wake up in 2001, 2002, uh, and there are more phones with cameras than there are freestanding cameras or, or standalone cameras. And everyone's got digital pictures and the social networks are reinvented with a heavy emphasis on imagery. And the lesson, one of the lessons from that is, and I, I see this with many businesses, it's very difficult to predict the macro changes that are going to occur in an industry that could substantially change the course of your business. It's very difficult to predict. You're, you take your surfboard out and you know, you've got a very um, finely constructed plan about how you're going to surf to shore and you're waiting for the waves and, you're waiting for, and they don't come. And now you've got to figure out, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to paddle to the left or the right? Or is a wave going to come? And it's very difficult to predict when that wave is going to come. Your question earlier, two questions earlier is, you know, one, a lot of the great businesses are built over a 10, 20, 30 year period. And what, and then this question now is what is one of the lessons? One of the lessons is in most spaces, there are huge waves to come that facilitate dramatic success. And if you're not in a business long enough, you good chance won't be there to experience the wave. In our case, that wave turned out to be uh, digital, uh, digital cameras, digital cam phones with digital cameras 
that enabled an entirely new usage pattern uh, of the social network. And so one of the lessons is you don't know what timing is going to look like. You don't know what you don't know. And longevity with a business um, means that as a, as any business goes through different iterations and experiences, highs and lows, if you're around long enough, good chance you're going to experience a wave. In my case, we were, we, we were burning so much capital that, um, you know, it was a difficult decision. I wonder how I would do it differently, whether or not I would have gone out and tried to raise a mammoth round or the sale would have been the right lesson. But, um, but it's an interesting insight that being around for longer increases your likelihood of success if for no other reason than you're around. You've gone on to have enormous success and we're going to get to some of the other companies that, that you built and sold. And, and I mean, your resume is incredible. So you've had an amazing journey. Uh, having said that, as you look back now, uh, if you had it to do over again, knowing everything you know now, including the success you've had since then, would you still make the same decision to sell when you did? So if I, if I had the impossible, you know, ability, ability to look back and I knew, I mean, I, just to put this a little bit into sharper focus, we had people writing in, we had millions of members. We had people writing in saying, I want to attach a photograph to my profile. Um, I'm going to mail you one in the U S postal service. And I had put together a plan an assembly line. I mean, this is virtually inconceivable today, but I had put together a plan with an assembly line of scores of people that would open envelopes. And we had to figure out how to authenticate that. In fact, the photograph was with a person and what happened if they wanted to change the photograph, we would scan in the photograph. Now we never implemented that plan, but to give you, it wasn't this notion of that people are going to have photographs and, and, you know, we thought it would be amazing if everyone just had one. In a million years, I don't think we conceived that people would have thousands, but we were aware that there was this opportunity that would occur when we could incorporate imagery or whether it was still imagery or, or, or video into the social network. And it was beyond our grasp. If I could do it again, and if I could have, if I could have, have, have known that, I think I would have articulated to a larger investor base that this great wave is coming and I see the wave and I'm going to try to get you to see the wave. And when this wave arrives, we will be better positioned than anyone to take, take advantage of it. But I, I never was, I never tried to articulate that great wave as the defining moment for, um, for a, another seismic shift in social. So, you know, if, if I knew all of that, you know, going back and I could have articulated that, that grander story. Yeah. I, I, I surely would have done it. You know, the, the, um, defining, uh, characteristic of social networks over the past 20 years has been that with the introduction of each new technology, we have seen new social networks. So we did not have, um, active users of text messaging in the United States, the way they did in Europe originally, because it wasn't clear that our carrier, our carriers weren't in fact interoperable. It wasn't clear that if you sent a text message from an AT&T phone, it would get delivered to a Verizon phone. But as soon as we did, you had Twitter. As soon as the iPhone uh, ecosystem was developed, you had, uh, you had Instagram. You have new apps that are focused as soon as, as bandwidth improved and, um, and it was more reliable for you to, on a mobile device, receive video. You have Snapchat, for example. And so, you know, uh, the, this ability, this is not unique to me, this notion that a, um, an ecosystem seismic change can influence your business. It's true for every business, that every business is subject to um, circumstances, constraints that are bigger than them and massive changes that they can't affect. But and, and, in, and that, in fact, has been the pattern of social networks. So with the introduction of each new uh, technology or adoption of each new platform, whether it was iPhone, Android, text messaging, 
um, you're seeing an entirely new instance of social networks. And I, I would argue that's probably true in every single vertical. And so, of course, if you could look back in time, I think you'd craft a much, much bigger picture. Most everyone would. You'd pick, you would craft a picture based on a prediction you could make about the future. And if you could get people to subscribe to that vision, you try to build a very, very big company. Absolutely. Before we leave Six Degrees, I just wanted to talk about the lesson learned around the power of a board of directors or an advisory board. To be clear, yours was a fiduciary board of directors as opposed to simply a you know, volunteer advisory board. Is that correct? Yes. Got it. So, so Matthew uh, was the one who initiated this conversation with the CEO of Ustream. So, I mean, what lessons are there for other entrepreneurs uh, about the the benefit of advisors, both informal and formal. So, you know, informal. Um, a lot of times, you get what you pay for, and you know, if you don't motivate people and say you're on my team, um, it's it's difficult to expect great things from the people around you. But what I like to do is um, is put together a clear plan of what it is that I want to accomplish. And the same way that I am fairly transparent when I run a company of sharing that plan with everyone at the company and saying, look, we all have to be on the same page and here are the different responsibilities and we'll even have uh, division heads report out to other division heads. So there's a sense of not just accountability to me, but accountability to each other. I like to conceive of the board of directors in the same way. And even though the board of directors has a fiduciary responsibility uh, an oversight responsibility to protect the interests of, of shareholders, I look at it like if they're not working for me, if they're not thinking about um, how to build the business, this is when I'm the CEO, um, then they're wasting time. A and so the best way to manage a board of directors is you identify what the needs are that you have. They could be, look, we are selling a product. And these are the verticals we want to get into. And we don't have relationships with these distributors or these prospective clients. And we put it in a Google Doc and say, uh, would love for you to work your network to figure out what introductions you could broker. When you look to raise capital, one of the most important things you can look for in a, um, in a venture source is what other... Um, is one is their ability to reinvest with you over time. That's critical, but it's also important whether or not they can broker relationships to, um, to other sources of capital. Now that's less important over time as you develop relationships as you're a serial entrepreneur and you develop your own relationships. But for starting, uh, you know, for, for, for entrepreneurs starting out, that's absolutely critical. So what I like to do is think about what are the key things that I'm missing? And then what are the key director uh, directors that could fill those gaps, um, and then engage them in a, in a dialogue and see whether or not there's a good fit. And they're excited, not just about investing in the company, but being a part of the team. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about this company I stand for. Uh, some people may not have heard of it. So maybe describe what you guys did there. So my, my focus has always been on, on identifying verticals that I thought were ripe for disruption. And it was, um, 2005, you had seen some, um, some limited success with uh, online. Actually, I think it was 2004. You'd seen some limited success with a few candidates doing um, online fundraising. Um, and I had, I'm sorry, I've got the time frame. Uh, I've got the time frame wrong. We started, um, we started, I think, in. Um, Kind of check this. I think we started in 2003, but the 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 idea was that we would bring all of the tools that were cloud-based tools that were available to um, the private sector to political campaigns and nonprofits, and that meant we would deal with um, a campaign in a box solution. You could do your online fundraising. You could build your build your community. Um, we would put a website together for you. And, um, and that was the essence of the company. And I, um, uh, capitalized that one myself. Um, we never raised outside capital for that. And we, um, ultimately I think had more 
clients, gubernatorial house, Senate, uh, clients in, on, on the Democratic side of the aisle than anyone when we sold that business in 2005. Hmm. Talk about the sale process. How did you approach that uh, differently? Was it another uh, Allen and Company retreat style, uh, quiet conversation, or did you do something different? No. What was interesting about that business was I grew to not enjoy that business fairly quickly. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why I didn't enjoy the business. I had this idea, um, that I've always been, been intrigued by, by politics and, um, and I wanted to, and, and, um, and public policy. And I, I had this idea that I could build a solution, um, for political campaigns and then really just get closer to the, this new vertical, if you will, that I hadn't previously uh, touched at all. And what I found was um, that the candidates themselves were more interested in the short term in consulting than they were in just getting a technology solution. So I, I remember I had a meeting with, we, we represented, uh, I told you gubernatorial house, Senate races, but I had a meeting with a very prominent uh, politician, his name I, I won't mention. And I remember after we sold him our solution for this campaign in a box, um, he asked me if I would consult him on how to craft emails to build community. And um, he thought it was incredibly insightful when I told him that the first email that he wrote needed to announce that he had a website and he would be engaged in online fundraising. And that's the level of sophistication that the, it, by the way, he was indicative of all many of the other candidates, uh, that there was, that there was no understanding whatsoever about it, certainly at this time about what it meant to build online. And so simply giving them a technology solution wasn't enough. I found myself spending a lot of time talking to campaigns and dealing with, um, very unsophisticated people. Um, which just wasn't enjoyable. So I made the decision to sell the business. And, but what I had done along the way was identify who all of the companies were that played in the ecosystem of um, consulting for working with political campaigns. And that's everyone from companies that did uh, regulatory filings to large political consultancies. And so what we did was we had a, attorney that was working with us, um, send a letter, which I had crafted, which said, um, I stand for it is interested in, um, I stand for it has, has been entertaining, uh, offers to sell, to sell. Uh, I didn't say, um, that we were interested in selling. I just said we had been entertaining offers to sell. And, um, in order for us to evaluate these offers, um, we thought we would reach out to you and we are going to make all of our decisions by such and such a date. So if there's interest, please send us a response um, within the next, I think it was, you know, five days. Um, we'll ask you to sign a, um, an NDA and we will send you a due diligence packet, which we had prepared. And, um, and then we'll look for expressions of interest, some end period, end number of days thereafter. And by setting up this rigorous process, we were able to generate interest. And How many people on the long list, Andrew? How many you know, people got the letter? You know, you can't quote me on this because it was a long time ago, but it was somewhere between, um, it was somewhere around 15 companies that got the letter. It was not, you know, 500 companies. It was, it was very tailored. We had a very clear sense of who might be interested. We didn't have time to waste. I mean, one, one thing you'll find is I've been engaged in this identical process with other companies, not companies that I, um, that I was the founder of and virtually everyone you write will say I'm interested. And one of the reasons virtually everyone you write will say I'm interested is because you're playing in their space. And if they can get a free look at a due diligence packet, simply to educate themselves about the space, they're all going to say yes. And so if you come up with a list of 200 names and assuming that you've got some business, um, and that these other people are aware of you, you might find that everyone asks for the due diligence packet. And so that's not the best situation either, because then you're in a situation where you can't really figure out who's really interested and who's not. 
So we were pretty clear about who we thought was a realistic prospect. And those are the people we reached out to. The 15. And of the 15, how many came back to you and said, yes, I'll sign the NDA in return for the diligence package? It was, it was a large percent. I don't remember the number, but it was, you know, um, it, it, was, it, was, um, it wasn't all, but it was a lot. And of the ones that came back, what proportion then made an offer? So, you know, we engaged in discussions with a number of them, but, you know, ultimately it was clear from a timing perspective that there was one that was able to move rapidly. And so that's, that's where we focused. We optimized for time instead of for price. Interesting. And, and was that, you know, why was time such a big focus for you? I mean, one of the challenges you have once you engage in a process like that is your credibility is at stake. If you tell people that you're going to complete this process in four weeks because you are entertaining offers and the process drags on for, you know, three times the time that you suggested, it's pretty clear you weren't entertaining offers to begin with, or it's pretty clear that those offers aren't that firm. And the ability for you to close any deal can be dramatically reduced. So when you engage in a process where you're telling people this is a process, credibility matters a great deal. And if you don't, um, if there's not some sense of urgency, whether because there's actual urgency or because you're trying to tell people there's urgency, there are other opportunities you have, um, there's a good chance that, uh, the price you'll get could ultimately be dramatically reduced. And in your case, you were driving towards this, this finish line. You identified one that was ready to, to close. And, and, and so you thought it was better to opt for expediency speed as opposed to continuing to gin up the price as much as you could. Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, everyone has, Everyone has their own objectives. Everyone has, um, um, you know, th their, their, the life they would like to lead, the job they would like to have. I think if you fall out of love with a business, um, it's important to find a way to exit that business and do something you love. Across the board, the entrepreneurs I see that are the most successful are the ones that hold on to the same passion for their business, whether it's five years or 10 years or 15 or 20 years after they start, it's the same passion as when they did start. And when you begin to lose that, um, it really, it, it really begins to get reflected in, in what you do. And so I think it requires an immense amount of self-awareness. And when you reach a point where you say, this is not the highest and best use of my time, then um, you want to figure out how to quickly transition to what that new opportunity is. And my focus is, is trying to do things that I think can be, um, where I can be very impactful. And so once I'd made that decision and I had articulated a process, I was intent on keeping it. And how much difference was there between uh, the expedient offer <laughs> the one you accepted and, and, and perhaps the other offers, I mean, were, were the prices that they were willing to pay around the same, give or take 10 or 20% or was, were they wildly different? You know, I don't remember. I mean, it, it, I, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't remember. I mean, I, I, um, I don't, you know, to some extent, a, a lot of people come back to you and they ask for, um, they ask for guidance. And when you engage in a process like this and, you know, you try as hard as you can not to give guidance because you're always better off when someone puts a number down first. And, but to the extent someone pushes you and they give you guidance and you give them guidance, I'm sorry. And then they talk in, in broad strokes about ranges. It's difficult, you know, years later when you talk about it to say, okay, well, it was this price relative to the sale price. And so, you know, you're talking about a, a differential of X percent and, and for that differential expediency trumps uh, price. It, you know, it was, it, it's, these dynamics are more about people don't come out and they say, I'm going to pay you X dollars. People talk in, in broad strokes. 
And when people talk in broad strokes, that's when you begin to say, okay, is this person going to deliver exactly on the time frame that I'm talking about? Are they going to meet the, the, the process that I've articulated? And if they're not, then um, it really doesn't matter where these broad strokes are. They may, they may be very, very serious about the ranges they're articulating, but they may not be. So I, I don't remember, um, I mean, it's, it's funny because your question is a very, a very interesting one. You know, if someone offered twice the price, would you wait? If someone offered, you know, 150% uh, or just 50% more, 25% more, would you wait? Um, I, I wish I could tell you, I, I wish I could tell you I remembered it, but, but I don't remember, uh, I don't remember it. I was just very aware of, um, there was a path that was clear and there were other paths that were unclear and the unclear paths, um, were not attractive to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the next, uh, business that got you fired up, which I understand was meet moi and, and sort of then transition transitioned, uh, Nextify came out of that. So let's talk a little bit about meet so, moi. so this is a crazy story. So the meet moi, I started, um, with a partner, um, Jeremy Levy. He was one of my employees at, um, a prior company called Joltage. And we started uh, Meet Moi with this idea that dating, online dating, conducted from a desktop made no sense. It made no sense because people spent more time scheduling dates than they did going on dates. And if we could figure out where people were in real time, and, um, and if we also determined that they were um, matches for one another, they were bi-directional matches, in other words, um, person A met the attributes of person B and person B met the attributes of person A, then we could in fact propose a location for them to meet that was equidistant from them and make meetings in real time instead of, um, instead of, uh, in, through a scheduled process. What was interesting was this was before the introduction of the iPhone. So this was before you could build an app. And instead what we did was we built a client for dumb phones that essentially reverse triangulated the position of the person and built an entire experience through text messaging. And we really had this vision about building for phones. And it was before there was the interfaces that you're so accustomed to today on an Android or iOS platform. And um, what happened was while we were building that business, and obviously we uh, pivoted multiple times building that business um, because, well, for one, it, even if you were building for a mobile web experience, the mobile web emerged uh, and was something to build for with, uh, with new technologies and more a more robust browser. And then there was, of course, the downloadables. And, but as we were building that business, it occurred to, to us that what was even more interesting than knowing where you are relevant to another person was knowing where you are relevant to another place. And so, for example, I'm walking by a Starbucks and Starbucks could send me a message that says, go 50 feet forward, make a right-hand turn and get 20% off that cappuccino. And then even more important than that, we recognized that as a corporate or as a business medium for messaging people, uh, SMS made no sense. This idea that you would message people uh, and the carriers would intermediate and, and charge a tariff struck us as ridiculous. And we predicted, now seems so, so obvious, but we predicted that, that um, push notifications uh, would supplant SMS as a much more important medium for communication. And so while we were building this mobile dating service, we said, well, there should be a mobile CRM that enables push notifications. It's a backend infrastructure uh, play. Um, and uh, this backend infrastructure could power major corporations. Um, and so we would, um, and, and it would tell you when you were approximate to these corporations and allow you to send an appropriate coupon or whatever. And we went to the board and said, uh, I went to the board and said, look, this is a great opportunity. I, I, want to set up another company that does this. But since this idea was born from Meet Moi, um, I'm going to set up this other company 
with your blessing and I will mirror the cap table of Meet Moi. And if you don't put in a penny, whatever you owned in Meet Moi, you investors, you will own in Extify. And I even said that to the employees of Meet Moi, that if you had options, we will mirror those options in Extify. And uh, again, with, with a vesting schedule and assuming you were there, um, and the investors liked the idea and trusted that we, that, you know, we would be able to do this, um, of mirroring the company. And they, in fact, invested, uh, many millions of dollars. A and, um, and I went out and I did a retained search for a CEO and we built an entirely separate team. And I, um, brought in a CEO for Meet One, and then I played a chairman role at Meet One, a chairman role at Xtify. Why wouldn't the investors for Meet Moi be willing to go along with Extify in the sense that you were mirroring the cap table? They didn't have any extra money to invest. It was a no-brainer, no? Well, no. I mean, the the look, the death knell of most startups is a lack of focus. The idea of a CEO coming in and saying, you know, I, I'm I still want to stay focused on idea A, but I want to do something completely different and divide my time is usually a recipe for disaster, right? You you bet on the CEO, you bet on the founding team. And here's a founder that comes in and says, I know you bet on me. I'm going to hire a CEO for each. So you will not have me as the CEO for either company. And are you comfortable with that? That's a, I, I mean, I, I think what you would find if most people try to repeat that is investors that would throw up on that. We happen to have our big investor, um, was um incredible so they were were you know we uh, we articulated you know in a very detailed fashion what we intended to do with each we were transparent about you know what time allocation would look like for each um we made everyone whole and they embraced it but I, i'm not sure that other people would have been so excited i think what, what you would have in another instance is if someone did that is the investor just saying okay do what you want, but I'm not going to put more capital in. This investor put more capital into both businesses. Talk about the exits then, because I understand both Meet Moi and Extify uh, went on to sell. Maybe talk about which one happened first and 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 the highlights of each. So Extify happened first. Um, Extify, Extify um, was... Uh, focused on selling to big brands. And we were also focused on working with resellers that could distribute uh, for us, that could do the integration work for us. And um, I guess it was in, in 2000, sold in 2013. So I guess it was, it was sometime in 2012. Um, we decided to do a, another financing and we engaged a boutique investment bank um, and we engaged them on the basis of what's called a dual track. The dual track meaning that they would look for capital for us and evaluate acquisition opportunities at the same time. And the reason for that was a lot of times as you're trying to raise uh, larger rounds of capital, you entertain offers from strategics. So as opposed to getting an investment from uh, Kleiner Perkins, you would get an investment from an IBM or a Microsoft or a Google. And sometimes when you're engaged in those conversations, the conversation can quickly turn to what would an acquisition look like? So the dual track made a great deal of sense for us. And um, what was interesting was while the bank was fantastic, I mean, they were really, they're just very professional. They had, they put together, um, we worked in collaboration with them on putting together a list of who we thought were appropriate sources of capital and appropriate sources of strategic capital, pure capital, strategic capital. And the strategic capital was the overlap with the prospective acquirers. Um, and, and I will tell you again, that, you know, being incredibly focused here, the same way I, I talked about in the I stand for process, being incredibly focused about who you're targeting, um, raising capital, nothing is more important than being focused. So identifying people that have invested in similar companies 
dramatically increases your likelihood that they'll invest with you. And, you know, one of the early learnings from Six Degrees was I would speak with anybody. So if someone had made an investment in a biotech company, I would tell them about Six Degrees with the thought that they have money, I need money, therefore there's a match. But in fact, the largest hurdle to get someone over when they're investing in your business is, is developing a perspective on what you're doing relative to the space. And if you've got to educate them on the space, odds are they're not investing. Whereas if they're experts in the space, good chance that you're at least in the ballpark of, of having them considered investment. So we put together this list in concert with them and we had a great um, CEO that we had done a retained search for. And um, ironically, the relationship with IBM um, was developed uh, through the CEO first um, and the bank second, even though the bank was tasked with um, engaging in all these relationships. I'm not even sure that the bank maybe even contacted IBM. Now, IBM is so big and uh, did not get a, a positive response. And then our CEO was actually working with an operating group there and um, working on an, I think working on uh, an integration. Um, and, uh, and because we had a, a, we were developing, I wouldn't say we had, we were developing a business relationship um, we were able to pursue a, um, an acquisition. It's a mechanical question, Andrew, but I'm interested in the dual track, uh, mandate you gave to the M&A bankers were, was the success fee the same, i.e. a percentage of what was raised, whether it was investment capital or, uh, you know, acquisition? Um, I doubt it. I, I, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure when you do a, I'm pretty sure when you do a dual track, no, you've got, you've got, I'm pretty sure when you do, when you do a dual track, uh, engagement, um, the percentages are different for an acquisition than they are for a capital raised. But, but I, I, I don't remember, I mean, I'm saying that generally, I don't remember specifically, um, with this engagement, what the, um, what the percentages were for each. So in the Xtify example, your M&A folks are, have got this dual track. They're out there talking to potential investors. Your CEO finds IBM. Does that, so did, did the M&A firm get competing offers from other firms, IBM ultimately being the winner or how quickly were you, did you sort of settle they, on IBM? They did have, they did have other, they did have other offers. The, the, what was interesting was, you know, in, when you sell to a strategic, um, the, um, the, this isn't just true of, of, of this particular instance, but I think this is true broadly speaking of when you sell to a strategic, it's critical, almost always critical that you have a business. Uh, there's someone makes a business case for the acquisition. Someone says integration of this company into ours can lead to this type of, um, of revenue generated within the acquirer. So obviously startups have their own projections about what they can do, but the acquirer needs to create a internal business case. And if you have a relationship with a business unit, well, they're in a position to talk about what that business case would look like. Often if they don't, and you speak directly to an M&A group, the M&A group farms you off to a business group. So if you just think about it from a timing perspective, if you decide you want to sell to a strategic and the way you do that is you engage in a discussion with an M&A group and the M&A group is almost always going to send you down to a business group. And in, a, in the case of a big company, there may be several business groups and they're looking for a business owner to say, there's a compelling uh, storyline here for why this makes sense. You are extending the process if your first touch point is through the M&A group. Whereas if your first touch point is through a business group, well, the business group has already begun to think about what the case looks like, and then it's referred out to the M&A, and the process has, is essentially one, the biggest leg of the process is eliminated. And so your recommendation would be to go to the business group first and, and, and go around the corporate development team? It, it's not go around. It's, you know, if, if you're a, it, one of, we had a... Um, one of our directors was a director at GSI Commerce, and he had immense experience. This was for Xtify. He had immense experience with 
uh, SaaS business is focused on the enterprise. And one of the things he said to us early on was, um, if you guys are going to be successful, you're going to need um, to at some point be generating 50% of your sales from either integrators, resellers, distributors, whatever you want to call them. And those companies we began to focus on were the most logical acquirers. So, you know, and by the way, I would argue, usually when you think about a strategic sale, if you're selling to someone, not always, but there's a good chance that there is some relationship you could have with them prior to a sale that is in the economic interest of both you and the acquirer. And so part of, now, part of our forward uh, thinking mission was we needed to diversify from direct sales and um, reseller sales. And I told you this director said, you know, set as a benchmark for that 50-50. But it was part of our, our business imperatives to develop these relationships. And usually that's true for most companies, even if you're a B2C and you think about uh, you know, I've, I've got this consumer property. Who can give me massive distribution? Who has a massive marketing arm? Who has a, maybe it's a media property. Maybe it's someone who's also in my vertical that has a large audience. Can I get them to promote my product? We're not direct competitors. Engaging in what's good for your business is often the same path that it would be to sell your business. And if you're developing these relationships, this is the ultimate the, 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 if there was one learning about selling a business, the one learning is that you need to develop relationships with the logical acquirers well before it's time to sell the business. And you need to figure out why it makes sense to develop relationships with them to further your business, not just to sell it well before it's time to sell the business. And if you do that, you're on the path to sell if and when that's what you decide to do. A great lesson learned for sure. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to end the interview there, but I want to ask briefly as a postscript, how did you exit out of Meet Moi? So um, Meet Moi, we, um, we were, there were two things we were, we were excited about at Meet Moi. We had the dating property, and then we had built um, a, uh, it, we had built a, um, what I thought was a, bleeding edge analytics component, which allowed us to engage in the direct marketing, right? Mostly what, what dating businesses are is they're, uh, they build a good mousetrap and then they engage in direct marketing and look, you know, to acquire users at less that they can monetize them for. And um, again, we got excited about uh, capitalizing on the secondary idea. So XFI came out of Meatwap, indicative, um, indicative.com. Um, we decided we wanted to set up as a separate business. And so we sold the, again, I knew, you know, when it came time to sell Meet Moi, I knew the head of M&A at Match. I knew the CEO of Zeusk. You know, we knew the people at, I knew the CEO of Spark, which is the owner of, of, um, of JDate, um, and Christian Mangle. Uh, and we, we knew all of these players and we, um, so, you know, the process was fairly straightforward. Um, and also what we wanted was fairly straightforward, which was that we wanted to sell the, um, the dating assets and retain the, um, analytic analytics component. And in fact, um, we did that, uh, we sold the, the dating component to match and then we, um, purchased, uh, Jeremy and I purchased the, uh, analytics component and set up. Um, this new entity called Indicative. And then we capitalized Indicative and now Jeremy is the CEO of Indicative and I'm the chairman of, of Indicative, um, focused on uh, business analytics with a spe special focus on customer journey and, and um, analyzing the customer journey for large enterprises um, uh, as a standalone company. And then we, we, cap we went out and raised money for that as well. The, the cycle continues. Briefly, tell us what, uh, tell us about Andrew's roadmap and, and, and how people can reach you. So it, it, Andrew's roadmaps. So the, the idea is, it was this. I, I found that through the course of building all of these businesses, that um, there was a best practice for every discipline in the life cycle of a startup. And that, in fact, most businesses engage in a process of 
ready, fire, aim. They'll build product before they think through um, what the what the functionality or they'll doc or, or before they'll document the functionality that they mean to build. They'll begin spending on marketing before they think through what are the KPIs they're trying to achieve. And so I put together uh, a best practice for every discipline in the life cycle of a startup. What is a business plan look like? What do cash flow projections look like? What is a marketing plan, sales plan, PR plan, uh, product specifications? Uh, what questions should you ask on, on hiring someone? How do you fire someone? When do you file a provisional patent? And I put together a intensive program, two-day intensive program for founders of startups. And in the course of two days, I do uh, all the lecturing myself, uh, seven hours on day one, seven hours on day two. I run startups through um, this very rigorous programming designed to equip them with visibility on the end-to-end end-to-end uh, process or the life cycle of a startup. And, um, we've had hundreds of companies come through with a great deal of excitement, um, and some really good companies. So that's, uh, Andrew's roadmaps. If someone wants to get in touch with me, they can do, they can do so at, um, at Andrew's roadmaps, uh, just by going to, to www.andrewsroadmaps.com. Andrew Weinrich, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.